don't think you're allowed to say that on the podcast. <laughs> that was the best line ever, though. <laughs> Welcome to episode 23 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. And I'm Rory. And I'm Sherry. How's everyone's summer? This is our summer edition. Yay! <laughs> Yay, fun times. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to stay positive for the most part. I did so much better this week. Okay. I found a good topic. <laughs> okay, well, hopefully we'll, if we get into a rabbit hole, we'll pull ourselves back up. But uh, for this episode, we're going to do a little bit of roundtable again, kind of pick a topic that has impacted human beings and kind of maybe give our little five-star rating again. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Rory just hates. He cannot figure it out. <laughs> it's because there's multiple dimensions okay. that okay. you are just unwilling to acknowledge. Okay. Well, we'll stick with one dimension, your, your most important dimension. So are we picking good, bad, or are we picking impact level? Because this was the same dilemma before. <laughs> Let's say good, bad. Good, Let's bad. Sim simpler. Rory's brain is exploding. So one is bad. <laughs> what, 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 you know, uh, at, a, in the, at the grand scheme of things, how much contribution of good does your topic have? So that will be okay. our criteria. Okay. The average good in a five-star scale. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to go first. So my first topic today is smartphones. Now, I think we all know everyone has a smartphone now, right? Every year, about 1.4 billion smartphones are sold. So in fact, actually, if you do the calculations, there's actually more smartphones in the world now than people, which I, I mean, that's crazy in terms of uh, volume. And when I think about smartphones, I think about uh, kind of the history of kind of how it came about. I mean, what what were your first phones? Do you remember? Oh, the flip phone. The flip phone? Yep. Rory in university had the flip phone I had in high school. It's <laughs> true. Years later, I acquired the, uh, the was, refuse was, of Was sharing. it secondhand? <laughs> um, I don't know if it was secondhand. I think it was just one of the free phone deals that you get at the phone store. Was it like the Motorola flip phone or something like that? Was it the it Razor? I, not the Razor. I was not that cool. <laughs> it was very clunky. And I think you had an attachment on your belt for it. It was wonderful. I held off getting a cell phone for a very long time because I did not like the idea of being accessible anytime, anywhere. And I still kind of don't. But yes, I'm now part of the smartphone Wait, generation. don't you still have a belt clip? For your phone? Yes, actually I do. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Even though it's a smartphone. So, anyways. <laughs> I refuse to be seen in public with you. <laughs> My shirt covers it up nicely. I'm kind of shocked though because you are into technology and stuff like that and to just be rejecting this this type of technology seems a little bit odd. Phones just were never my thing, I guess. And anything a phone can do from a tech aspect or from a tech perspective, I can do it better with a computer. So why would I spend my time on my phone if I could spend my time in front of my computer instead? Mm -hmm. Anything so, phones can do, Rory can do better. Yeah. So we'll get back to the computer thing. But uh, so when we kind of think about smartphones, like my first phone was a one of those Nokia candy bar phones. It was secondhand, really crappy, but it worked. It was a phone. And you know, it took you ages to type out a text message. Oh, yeah. You had to type the same number like three times. Exactly. Anything that starts with a C or a G, that's just <laughs> horrible. So, uh, yeah. So when you think about smartphones, uh, I don't know about you, but the phone that pops into my head is kind of the iPhone. That was what really kicked off the smartphone revolution. And kind of think back, this was 2007. Uh, when Apple first released the iPhone. At that time, BlackBerry was the leader. They had the whatever BlackBerry model out there, but everyone was into Blackberries. They loved their keyboards. But then iPhone came out and everyone kind of just lost their minds because now you have some futuristic phone out there. I remember seeing like a FaceTime commercial or like a smartphone commercial where they were showing FaceTime. And so um, one of the partners was at home and one of the partners was in the grocery store and they were calling each other through FaceTime to figure out what to buy at the grocery store. And I just thought to myself, why would anyone need this feature? Why do we need a like video phone call? 
And do you video phone oh, call all now? the time? <laughs> <laughs> I now understand, but I did not understand when they first came out. So fun, fun fact: Did you know that when Apple was developing, you know, their next generation product, the iPad actually came first. They actually uh, designed the iPad, but then they thought, "Wait a minute! If we just shrank this, it would be an amazing phone." So they actually put the iPad aside. And then just worked on the phone. So. so they never released the iPad, or did they release it and then they, they came out they with the phone after? They they released the iPad after the iPhone. So the iPhone came oh. first. So they actually designed the iPad first, but then they realized, wait, if we actually miniaturize this, this would be an amazing phone. So so that that's kind of a little bit of background, kind of the history of uh, the iPhone. But at that time. BlackBerry was dominant. It was famously quoted, BlackBerry thought the iPhone was a fake because they thought this could never exist in real life. Like, who, who has the components to actually make the iPhone? And then, uh, again, famous people like Microsoft CEO uh, Steve Ballmer basically laughed at the fact that the iPhone existed and no one would buy it because it was so expensive. But it was very interesting uh, from a technology standpoint what happened at that time because everyone had this perception that iPhones were expensive and the common sense uh, logic would be a competitor is going to come you know, uh, beneath the iPhone to, with something cheaper and just wipe Apple off of the map. They'll, they'll just develop a cheaper version of the iPhone, which many people tried, right? We have all these companies that tried to make cheaper versions. But the, there's been a lot of like business cases trying to understand what actually happened here. Because logically thinking, the, the iPhone should have just disappeared because it was so, so expensive. So there's a, um, a business professor, his name is Clayton Christensen. He had this disruptive innovation theory where uh, usually the low-tech, low-cost incumbent come in and usually wipe out the, the expensive players. And you would assume that would have happened to Apple. So the question everyone had was, why didn't actually happen to the iPhone? And the theory, just given what we've seen in the marketplace, is the iPhone didn't actually disrupt phones, for example. It wasn't the phone market that the iPhone disrupted. It was actually the computer market that the iPhone disrupted. So when you kind of think about uh, what can your iPhone do, it can do almost anything your computer can only worse only worse but but good enough actually right for like the majority of people out there so compared to a full computer full computers cost so much more versus a phone and the phone you can do a lot as well you can do uh, text messaging you can call but this where it really benefited people was in emerging markets, right? In countries that, when you kind of think about countries like China, India, Africa, people there don't really have computers. Like, the majority of people there actually just have smartphones. And what smartphones enabled was actually, essentially, a computer in your hand. And when you kind of think about the cost of a smartphone versus a computer, I mean, there is a reason why Smartphones have exploded all over Asia and, and Africa and, and South America. And now people have access to information from the internet. They have access to GPS. And uh, essentially, it has kind of replaced the computer market. I will grant you that being able to web browse with a phone that is just always attached to me because that's the way life is now, that is a convenience that I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, when you drive or travel, I mean, you must use GPS, right? Because I have forgotten how to use a map. Oh, I don't know how to use a map. <laughs> so I remember uh, once I had to, I think it was like at a wedding somewhere out in the country, and I was like trying to get home, and I totally got lost, and I was in a random parking lot, flipping through a map with the light on, trying to figure out where I was and how to get back onto the highway. And I mean, like nowadays, that would never happen. My phone would just tell me where I need to go. I was I was in Detroit and I had my phone, but it cost money for international um, data usage, so I didn't turn it on. And I got lost in Detroit, and I was terrified. I had to stop a at a convenience store and like put on my best, like I'm a little girl. Please tell me where to go, and bat my eyes and figure it out because I I was in a very sketchy area, and I was just like I I have to get out of here. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't know how to use a map. I didn't know directional. 
Like if somebody told me East, I would have just been like, okay, and then I wouldn't. I would have just gone back to my car and driven. Right. And you don't have a, you don't have a compass then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I totally rely on my GPS now. Yeah, I mean we're we're so reliant on our phones now because it just does everything for us, and there's just so many um, interesting innovations that kind of spawn from the phone. That now you we have a lot of new industries that you could argue whether it's good or bad, but now we have like ride sharing, so like Uber and Lyft, and we have also essentially housing sharing through like Airbnb, and all of these were kind of enabled by mo- mobile phones and the mobile infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So, and when you kind of think about Uber, for example, I mean that's just utilizing an asset that would otherwise just sit around in someone's you know, driveway for no reason. So now people have the opportunity to actually create income. Uh, but although you're technically taking away someone else's income, but uh, but it is a new industry and it's uh, it adds a, lo- a level of convenience that we never had. So for me, I mean, smartphones has really kind of changed the world and really impacted us good and bad. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff well, obviously, like GPS, there's a lot of bad stuff, but like social media and environmental impact as well. Yeah, I would say so. Because we're going through models of phones, you know, every few years, right? Mm-hmm. A, a lot of uh, mining for the rare elements that would make up a phone and uh, all the various electronic components. And some companies are doing their best to actually recycle a lot of that. So obviously, like Apple has been pretty proactive at making sure they can recycle every piece of that phone and extracting elements back from the phone. Uh, but that still has impacted the environment in terms of uh, in South America and Chile, there's a lot of lithium mining now, and that has impacted uh, gr- available groundwater for a lot of communities there because a lot of this mining, you require a lot of water to get the lithium out. And you have to, in Chile, most of it is the desert, so you have to actually pull water out of the ground and that impacts people's drinking water because less available drinking water for a city. So there's a lot of issues around that. But I don't know. O- overall, I don't think I could give up my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I could never give up my phone. I'm very attached to it. And I have all of my all of my devices are now in sync. So if I get a text message on my phone, I also get it on my iPad and I get it on my computer. And I appreciate that because then I can see like, oh, yeah, I missed a text message or oh, I need to check my email or whatever. Yeah, so there, there is obviously the bad in terms of environment. Uh, there's some bad in terms of now there's a lot of attention on security on phones and our privacy essentially being sucked away by corporations. So mm. uh, there's a lot of things to consider about some of the negative stuff about mobile phones. But overall, you know, I'm, I'm really happy <laughs> with mobile phones. I mean, to me, it's a net positive for me. Uh, I, I have Instagram and now the kids... The kids nowadays, they have this thing called TikTok. Did you hear about no, this? No, I haven't. I oh should my God, know about it, this. It's totally something new now. I'm like, I don't So It's like a uh, kind of a combination of Instagram slash Snapchat uh, video thing. So how does it work? You record a video and they tend to be funny and I don't know. Is it kind of like Vines? Yes, actually. Yeah, it's oh, okay. kind of like Vines. This uh, seems to be growing, so... All the kids are talking about TikTok. I'll keep that in mind so I can reference it during class and be the cool teacher. Exactly. That's how you be the cool teacher. What are you doing? TikToking? (laughs) I barely understand Snapchat. Like, I don't understand these kids. I know. I still don't understand Snapchat. And um, I have a friend who is older and he has Snapchat. And he told me uh, that he was sending me a snap and was like, I don't know what that means. And I don't know why. Are you doing this? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to know what Rory thinks about our progression of, of cell phones and cell phone usages. Because I know that you resent your phone. Largely indifferent. I, I know that's not a very... Uh... Just like a cat. <laughs> indifferent. <laughs> I mean, I see us moving through these generations and yeah, part of me says it's cool that phones can do more and more for us. And as I say, I appreciate being able to web browse or pull up a map or do all the newfangled things like uh, TikToking. But, and uh, listening to podcasts. 
I had oh, to show oh, him. I, like that. I had to show him. I had to download the episodes for us. That's true. <laughs> so that he could listen you to the podcast. Not, you did not know how to listen to us? <laughs> <laughs> On my phone, technically, no. <laughs> but I, I was okay with that because I have other mediums that I prefer to do these sorts of things with. And the phone is yes, just a, a phone. A, a mainframe computer that's the size of the house right <laughs> that would be ideal <laughs> but you, a, a desktop do still, will do do you still use floppy disk i do not okay see you're mistaking me for a troglodyte in all aspects of my life it is Rory? only the phones that i fall behind on do you still own a floppy disk mm, i don't believe so i believe i've thrown out the last of them okay do you still own a cd-rom what's no. that <laughs> do you have a cd writer in your computer no i don't No, the uh apple computers got rid of cd attachments a yeah, long time I, ago i actually have no way of reading any cds anymore yeah. i i have my ps4 that i think can play videos like movies on blu-ray but i don't but i don't why do you need it when you have netflix movies. i know i just download all my movies anyways netflix who needs yeah. cd roms yeah so Anyways, I am going to give it a four and a half stars out of five because I think it's just amazing. I'm going to give it a very indifferent three <laughs> sitting right <laughs> in the middle. I think I'll give it a four. I think that there's a lot of labor issues, uh, specifically in China, and a lot of environmental issues. So I'm going to take off a full point. But I think it's good. I think that the progress that we've made is great. I love being able to connect with people. I love being able to browse the internet. I just love being able to watch cat videos at any oh, time. True. And all the GIFs, like exactly. GIF. I don't know how to say that word. GIFs. GIFs? Is it GIFs? I think it's GIFs. Okay. <laughs> Rory's like, I don't know what this oh, is. Oh no, <laughs> you're not a a a GIF person, are you? <laughs> it's like you're, it's either going to be a GIF or a GIF, but I call it a GIF. Okay, I'm all about the GIFs. Yeah, we move on to calling them Jiffies. Send me some Jiffies. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> Next. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was good, Kenny. I will continue us on the technology train that we're going on. Um, just by happenstance, we're on that train today. Uh, and we're going to talk about video games. So I'm very excited to talk about this. So I'll kind of go through a bit of the history of video games. And I'm going to specifically focus on consoles. So um, the actual console gaming versus PC gaming, because I'm not a PC gamer. I think people are either PC or they're console. And Rory's shaking his head at me, but I don't care, Rory. So, so we're talking about the Atari and the Yes. Commodore. So yeah, so we started off our our video game life with PC gaming. But by the 70s and 80s, we started to have more uh, developing more consoles. So the Atari was the first one. Uh, that was the early 80s. And then next came things like Super Nintendo and Game Boy and Sega Genesis. Uh, those were our... Um, 8-bit kind of games, the very 2D sort of things. And we moved into a 3D generation of Xbox and PlayStation and that sort of thing. We also have a lot of handheld games. So like the Game Boy was kind of one of the first ones where you could actually take video games with you. Then with the development of smartphones, I think that, you know, now we have a lot of smartphones that have games on it and things like that. And we've moved into things like the Nintendo Switch, which is like a console and a handheld, which is really cool. Yeah, so it's become easier and easier to be able to own your own video games and consoles and, and be able to play games. So I think that's, I think that's kind of the history of gaming. I'm not going to go too, too much into it, but I think that video games, I kind of wanted to talk about them as a positive for humanity, because I know we're kind of bringing this back to a humanist perspective. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the storytelling aspect of it. Um, so uh, I took an English course to, to upgrade so I can teach English at a higher level a couple of years ago so I could teach high, high school English. And what we talked about was using video games as literature. So literature has become so much more than just books and plays written on paper. It's become things like video games or 
um, graphic novels or um, songs even. So I find it, I find it, I, I was really, my mind was kind of blown thinking about the fact that you can look at a video game and actually analyze it and, and think of it in more of an academic way. So I view video games as a positive and having a positive impact on young kids. And the other positive aspect as well is video games have kind of, again, created a uh, pathway for kids to learn programming, for example, and uh, problem solving. So right now, there's there are actually a lot of games, and I think some schools are actually implementing some uh, games that tie into programming, like you have to program your characters to do something. And uh, learning a programming language is quite beneficial because there's a lot of logic involved in actually developing a program. And not only do you help develop um, a child's ability to kind of think critically and think in, um, in various logic and uh, algorithms, but then obviously because they know programming, some kids will develop a passion for that and will hopefully one day be, uh, basically have a career out of programming as well. And especially when you kind of see how the job space is kind of changing, I mean, there's, there is a desperate, desperate need for more software engineers and programmers. Yeah, it's really interesting what schools are actually doing with coding and uh, computers and that sort of thing. I was, I've, I've visited a lot of elementary schools and they do have the, the game where you code at the same time you code to make a character do something or whatever. I was also in a music class where they were making their own musical instruments. So they were just, they were making them out of physical, you know, cardboard and that th sort of thing, but they were also coding a program and uh, connecting wires to their physical cardboard manifestations so that it became like a musical instrument that was able to be coded and used on a computer. It's very interesting what, what sorts of things schools are doing now. Yeah, and so I also judge uh, Science Fair here in uh, London every year as well. And every year I'm blown away by how kids have been progressing in programming artificial intelligence. Like every year, their artificial intelligence programs get significantly more and more complex each year. And I'm just completely blown away every time they start talking. I'm just like, oh my God, you're years ahead of me. <laughs> I know, it's amazing, eh? Yeah. So, I mean, video games really help, help children do a lot of different things. You know, you definitely the problem solving, working on coordination skills, so your mass um, motor skills doing things like improving your attention. So you're visually trying to uh, ignore certain stimuli and focus in on certain stimuli in order to achieve a goal. And you're also being cooperative. So you are trying to achieve a goal with other people. Potentially, uh, when you get into online gaming, it's other people across other spaces that you can't see. Or in a game, you might be working with other characters that are AI characters. And look, the I mean, the other reason to play video games is you can make money. Yes, you can. I don't know about that much, uh, about well, the making money uh, stuff. I, I, did you hear the news about this kid who won a million dollars in a video game competition? I did hear that, yes. I, I just can't believe that. Like <laughs> <laughs> Now, parents are not going to be able to stop kids from playing video games because the excuse is going to be, Look at this kid. He he played <laughs> video games every day and he won a million dollars. That's right? taking even a very exceptional example of somebody who's so good that they're winning a tournament or something. Other ways that people can earn a living playing video games is they start a Twitch channel, they gain yeah. a following, they sell some ads. There are people who have bought houses and just their day-to-day -day life is playing Super Mario Brothers for other people's enter entertainment. Now, of course, there's a social aspect to it, too. They have to have a running commentary. They have to be likable and personable. But video games are at the core of it, and they're playing them is what's bringing people together. Yeah, I don't actually quite understand which, but like people just watch other people play video games. Yeah, just on YouTube, people yeah. are just watching people. I do it sometimes when I get stuck at a certain spot in a game where I want to make sure that the choice that I make in the game will not result negatively. So <laughs> I'll watch, you know, somebody play the game so that I can be like, oh, okay, I need to do X, Y, and Z in this, this particular space. Yeah. There's a lot of different kinds of games. Um, obviously, I'm not going to get into all of them. There are shooter games, so first-person shooter games uh, where you're going around shooting things. There's also um, 
role-playing games where you're playing a character and making choices and are faced with a whole bunch of moral dilemmas and that sort of thing. Yeah, so there were a couple a couple games that I wanted to talk about in terms of enhancing in enhancing sort of humanity and and humanism, I guess, along those lines. But I wanted to kind of mention this game that I came across. So in 2008, doctors had uh, children who were fighting cancer play a video game where they battled against cancer um, and some of the symptoms of their cancer treatment. So children who played the game had better knowledge of their cancer and adhered better to their treatment protocol. And they're still distributing this game. So I think it's a great idea that we've used this medium to actually teach kids who are going through something and, and giving them a release, obviously, from, from the stresses of cancer, but also helping them to understand how to adhere to their treatment program. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. I thought it was great. And then I kind of wanted to delve into a little bit of uh, role-playing games. Uh, so Rory and I, we play video games with a friend of ours, and we were just playing a game called Detroit Becoming Human. So it was about androids. Okay. And it's set way off in the future where androids are actually looking like humans and they talk like humans and they've got AI systems, but they're not humans. So they've uh, taken away some, some of the human jobs just by, you know, being able to perform tasks and that sort of thing. And so humans are very angry, so they've lost their jobs and they're blaming androids. And there's this, this, this very obvious connection to World War II where uh-huh. the androids wear arm ba- armbands that you can see and they're segregated. And yeah, so it was very interesting to watch and be a part of this sort of social experiment where, where as you're going along, you're realizing, oh yeah, this is kind of like the story of, you know, the Jewish people and, and how they were treated like they were not human and... It's very interesting that we can get a social commentary out of video games. I find that very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So the first thing when you mentioned these robots, I mean, the freedom dividends would have solved all of this, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they would have. We need more freedom dividends. <laughs> but, uh, freedom dividends yeah, yeah. for everyone. So, so is it, this game is just interactive? Like what, what's the yeah, goal? So- as your, I'm assuming you're a character. Yeah, you play several different androids, and um, these androids have been mis- mistreated by humans, and they are. Do you get to choose your reaction to the world? Yes. So you you're presented with these moral choices, mm-hmm. and um, these androids are really developed in their AI, and they've started to break free out of their programming protocol so they're starting to make choices for themselves and mm-hmm. so you get to choose these choices for them and watch the narrative kind of unfold with that mm-hmm. that's really the strength of the game is the fact that you can make choices and that it attempts to depict fairly realistic consequences to major choices just to give you an example say that uh you know you're an oppressed people and you're looking for a way out you're looking for a way to gain rights for your people be they androids or human beings well there's a violent course of action that you could take and a non-violent course of action that you can take and if the consequences are realistic and understood properly through the video game medium it's a safe way for people to explore and add a new layer of rationalization to what is the correct course of action when you are in a position like that and maybe gain some empathy for these characters Mm -hmm. and real life human beings who are oppressed yeah and sometimes the choices can be blurry just like in real life they present you essentially like a trolley problem where (laughs) all all paths lead to disaster (laughs) i mean you you're given so many choices in the game that you could make a majority good choices and end up good, or you could make majority good and end up neutral, or, you know, it just depends on which choices you make. So it's it's very interesting, the, the, the role-playing games that have come out. The narratively driven ones like Detroit Become Human are my new favorite genre of video game, actually. I just love the way that those are structured and the way they play out. I'm so shocked. I feel like you, based on what I know about you so far, I thought you would be like, People should be playing chess <laughs> and checkers with physical objects. You are in need of an education about my hobbies, sir. Rory is a mystery. That's why we love him. <laughs> yeah, so there are those role-playing games. Um, 
and I think that the video game in- industry is really uh, progressing. I know it's got it's got some downfalls. You know, there's a need for more uh, representation and diversity. We are st- starting to get more diversity. We're starting to get LGBT characters. We're starting to get female characters. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn is a game which only features a female, which is so amazing. Things like um, Mass Effect, where you get to choose if you're a male or a female, and then during the game, depending on the choices you make, you could choose to have a relationship with a female, you could have a relationship with a male, or with an alien, which is non-binary. So, yeah, so there's so many different ways that we're starting to diversify. Um, There is a long way to go, but we're starting to get there, and I think that's really great for the the video game industry. Yeah, and it's not just a, a boys kind of uh, uh, activity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. now a lot of women and young girls play video games. Yeah, absolutely. I think I read a stat the other day that it was it was about like forty seven percent of gamers are now female, which oh, is awesome. That's Excellent, almost yeah. close to fifty fifty. Yeah, I think I think that younger people are playing video games more, and it's become less of a gendered activity Mm -hmm. so i think i think that's kind of what it is um and when i first chose this topic it was great this was the happy topic and there was nothing wrong at all a month ago there's still nothing (laughs) wrong at all nothing in the world has changed our perspective Uh, yeah, and then um, those shootings happened, and again, the rhetoric that's coming out is that video games but caused the shooters. But the rhetoric from one particular political party. One, yeah, I'm not not generalizing to say everyone, but A yeah. party that is largely in the pocket of a certain rifle association that I will not name, and you're coming on a situation where you have to choose a demon, and the demon cannot be a gun, even though it's a shooting, and so you look to violent video games, even though evidence supports well, the idea. Well, I mean, to me, I mean, the greatest evidence is violent video games are in every single country, but there's only one country that has you know, a mass shooting every single day. Yeah. Even beyond that, the uh, cathartic impact of playing violent video games is actually shown to outweigh the impact of inspiring violence, that people who play violent game video games actually have a lower risk of becoming a mass shooter exactly. than gotta, the general population. You've got to keep them inside and focus on video <laughs> games. Don't let them go outside. <laughs> Yeah, and I listened to a podcast called Pod Save America, and they were talking about this a little bit, and they talked about statistics where when uh, popular video games come out, crime actually decreases during that period of time. Because, And who knows why? It could be that people are more interested in staying inside and not going out and committing crimes. They're committing them, them maybe out of in trouble. the game or Keep whatever. Keep the kids out of trouble. <laughs> but it's, or it could be that cathartic feeling of, oh, I have all these frustrations in me. I feel like the world is against me, so I'm going to use this media instead of, you know, actually committing crimes. So I think, you know, it's it's so misconstrued, and I think it's by people who don't understand video games, and I think it's it's been happening for so long. I remember when Columbine, when that shooting happened, they blamed video games. And, it's, and they blame music, too. I recall... Yeah. Uh, Marilyn, Marilyn Manson. Manson. Yeah. Yes. And The Matrix for the trench coats. Yes, and violent movies or whatever but i think that i think that people are underestimated in their ability to understand what's real and what's not absolutely like i can play first person shooter games and i'm so good at them but i know that it's not real i'm not gonna go out and get a gun and and try and start shooting on my own like that's that's just silly and i think that to believe that People don't understand the difference between reality and video games. It's just, it's just. Yeah. Well, they're looking for a scapegoat. Totally. Yeah. So it kind of brought my topic down a little bit when I, when I heard all of this. But wah, I want, wah. I only bring it up to say that there, there are statistics out there that say that video gaming is actually good for you. It, you know, it creates these abilities to multitask. It gives you a relaxation. It, you know, it helps your motor skills. It's, it's really good for people. And I don't think we need to be afraid of it anymore. And all that in addition to the increasingly progressive depictions that you were mentioning earlier that we're seeing in these new games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my five-star rating for video games, I've been thinking about this. It's tough. I think that I will give it a 4.5 because we're not there with people of color and LGBT 
and um, diversity in the video game makers as well. So and so I'm just going to say 4.5. I think it's pretty good. Okay. I'm going to give it a 4, but only because I'm also a bit of a uh, productivity nut. So <laughs> when I see video games, I'm just like, hmm. Not the most productive use of time, so I'm just going to give it a 4. So I, I acknowledge its positive con- contributions to society, but I think it's... Uh, the productivity is lacking there. Oh, I expect nothing less from you, Kenny. <laughs> On that note, Patrick Stewart actually had a quote where uh, after giving the voice work for The Elder Scrolls Four, he said the only reason he doesn't play the game is because he believes that if he did, he would never do another productive thing in his life. <laughs> that said, I'm awarding video games five stars yes! out of five <laughs> as I am rounding up from Sherry's <gasps> scoreboard. Wow. This, this, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Because well, I know that Rory loves video games because I play them with him like every month. <laughs> I honestly thought you were going to say, stick to chess. <laughs> <laughs> I do love chess as well. <laughs> Rory and I bonded over our love of video games. Yes. It's very true. Yes. So wait, can you play Detroit on your phone? You can play it on your computer. You can play it on the PlayStation 4. I don't think you'd be able to handle it with a phone. It would just no. be too memory intensive well, and too graphically if, if intensive. A cool game came out on a phone and it sucked you in. Would you change your opinion about the phone? Would you increase the rating? The majority of games that you will find on a phone are actually cynical cash grabs that are trying to convince you to pour money into the game <laughs> yes, in lieu but, of progress. Yes, but you also played the game, uh, the Walking Dead game. Which was had great graphics and was an RPG, a role playing game. Let's revisit this. Is that available on the phone? It's it started on the phone, Rory. It did not. <laughs> Listen, let's, or maybe let's, it didn't. I don't know. I played it on the phone. <laughs> let's revisit in a year and let's when more games are on the phone and let's see if one game has hooked you in. It's maybe very, it'll change your rating. Very possible. I'll probably need to upgrade my phone to play this good game on it. But uh, I'm open. Open-minded in this regard. I'm going to start stealing your phone and putting games on it so that it goes my direction for the positivity. You won't get much past Pong. I have about 50 megabytes free on my phone. Oh, Rory, you can't do that to me. There's so much out there. With that said, I want to bring us back into another topic, all about um, something I'm very passionate about, which is writing and how to write compelling stories and a lot of what i'm giving you today is going to come from one of my favorite youtube series called lessons from the screenplay something to check out in your spare time another good one is cinefix and yet another good one is from nerd writer although he doesn't specifically focus on yeah, movies. i really like nerd writer nerd writer is awesome I, when <laughs> i first saw his this. videos i was like i have been missing out yeah, he's he had an excellent breakdown of Donald Trump's speech patterns. Yes. I love that. Oh, interesting. It I'm going to have to look at this. Fantastic. So that's Nerdwriter. It's basically just video essays, like these uh, uh, YouTubers, right? Yeah. They just, it's basically a video essay. Absolutely. But they seem so professional, and so much work has to have gone into these. that It's the research. I mean, the amount of research that must go into it immense. It feels like a lecture that you would get in a university. So without further ado, I'm going to start with a a quote from John Truby about writing good characters. And so that is, the single biggest mistake writers make when creating characters is that they think the hero and all other characters are separate individuals. The result is not only a weak hero, but also cardboard opponents and minor characters who are even weaker. Now, in case that needs a little bit more explanation, I also have an example from a movie. So, the movie I'm going to talk about is American Beauty. And the main theme of that movie is finding your true self versus appearances. And so, if we look at each of the characters, they're not actually separate individuals so much as they are different reflections on this main theme. So you take the main character, Lester. He's seeking his true self because he's tired of appearances. You look at his wife. She worships appearances, and she's losing her true self. And the daughter, she hates appearances, specifically her own appearance, and she's trying to find her true self. You look at the colonel, his neighbor. He needs appearances because he has to fear and try to hide his true gay self. And then finally, you look at his son, who sees through appearances, and he knows his true self. And so that... All, the fact that they're all a commentary on this theme is what makes all these characters work so well together. But there's another layer to this, and I'll go into that. Uh, this is, again, from Truby. You have to be mean to your characters. He's talking specifically for writers here. 
You have to make them suffer and struggle. The action has to matter and it has to have consequences. You have to show them failing and learning from their failure. Because that's how they grow and that's how they gain the audience's empathy. And that's really what it's all about. Gaining the empathy and creating that immersive experience. Letting people see themselves through these characters and learn something. What are your thoughts on that? I feel like I've been talking for a bit. To me, I mean, that's what makes really compelling stories when you have uh, characters that... Obviously, certain characters might have certain motivations, but if the motivation doesn't lead anywhere, it's kind of very empty. So, um, yeah, I definitely enjoy movies where you can see the layers and see how characters complement each other so you can contrast. I mean, it just makes the whole experience much more better. At least it almost... I mean, it gives the movie a point, right? and a purpose versus just, um, I don't know. I don't want to bash any movies. I can't think of a, a movie to bash in at the top of my head, but yeah. Well, we're not here to bash movies so much as describe what makes good movies so compelling. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, subplot characters. We're going to reinforce this point that you just brought up. The subplot character provides another opportunity to define the hero through comparison and advance the plot. So, Ideally, they're dealing with the same problem as the protagonist, but they're dealing with it in a different way. And the example that Lessons from the Screenplay gave comes from Gone Girl, where uh, the dangerous Amy, she framed Tommy for rape, and now she's framing Nick for murder. So we see the way that Tommy deals with this, and we see the way that Nick is learning from the way Tommy dealt with this, which ultimately leads him to realize that Amy can be tricked if you just perform the role of the man she wants you to be. And that's how he ends up saving himself. That's all I had to say about that uh, subplot character. (laughs) Any thoughts from you, Sherry? Well, I think that we watch movies because um, we want to see ourselves on screen and we want to relate to to things. Um, One of the reasons we might watch it, we don't always watch. Sometimes we watch for fantasy reasons or whatever, but... I think that that it's interesting when you say um when you're talking at the, at the beginning about how the hero is not separate from all of these other characters you know so to think that everyone relies on other people like you're never really alone in this world and so we can kind of see how the community of people the community of characters comes together yeah definitely the interconnections are all there and they all work together to provide some kind of point to the story that's being told. And I think that we can relate to that sort of when we're watching it. I have one last uh, character to talk about, and that's the great antagonist. And Lessons from the Screenplay uses uh, the example of the Dark Knight's Joker. And so again, I'm going to start with a quote this time from Robert McKee, who wrote the book Story. A protagonist and his or her story can only be as intellectually fascinating and emotionally compelling as the forces of antagonism make them. So we have to have a powerful villain or a powerful antagonistic force because that's what makes the struggle more difficult for our hero and thus a lot more interesting. So if we look at the example of the Joker, he has several ways in the Dark Knight of disregarding Batman's physical strength, which is Batman's greatest attribute, that his ability to intimidate. And he creates all these different situations where a fist fight isn't going to be the key that solves it. And to hark on the point that uh, the Joker is preying on Batman's weakness, he creates chaos and he kills people. And he creates this situation that challenges Batman's core moral code that Batman cannot kill someone. But it seems like the only way to stop a villain like the Joker is to kill him. And so that's how the Joker consistently gets the better of Batman, but also takes him into deeper waters that we wouldn't otherwise find him. Such as when he puts forth the ultimatum that Batman either gives himself up or the Joker is just going to kill more and more people. And Batman eventually reaches the conclusion that he can't beat the Joker on these grounds and he's ready to give himself up. It's only the Harvey Dent character that prevents that from happening. So we learn what the limit is to Batman's resolve because of the Joker and because of the way the Joker is preying on Batman's weaknesses. Just makes him such a more interesting and compelling villain. But Mm -hmm. your thoughts, Kenny? Well, my favorite villains are villains that believe they are doing the right thing and really... uh, and. Not some, it can't be some really corny reason, but I mean, it, it, stories where good and bad really kind of blur the lines and where there's a lot of gray. Like, I really love 
TV shows and movies that just have a lot of gray because it, to me it just reflects reality because it's we don't live our lives uh, uh, when we interact with people thinking there's good versus bad you know 24 7 there's there's a lot of gray everyone's imperfect and flawed and I mean that's for me that's very compelling when I watch that because it for me it's just more refreshing because I maybe I, I've seen too many movies where it's just good versus evil mm-hmm. it's always good versus evil and you never quite understand why is this person evil why is this person the- <laughs> Such a dick. <laughs> Kenny, did you ever watch uh, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And it's, it, it's, uh, it was a TV series when the writers were on strike, but it's sort of, it's as long as a movie. And it's about a villain who you're actually rooting for because he's this sweet guy and he just yeah. wants to but fall in love. the hero was... The hero was awful. The hero was a jerk. Nathan Fillion is the best jerk ever. He was ever. a wonderful jerk. <laughs> Love him. The hammer is <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to say that on the podcast. <laughs> it's going to be bleeped. <laughs> that was the best line ever, though. <laughs> so it is an amazing, amazing... Um, who was who did the who was the hero or the villain? Um, who was Doctor Horrible? Um, Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, sorry, just trying to think. So it was an amazing um, depiction of this villain that has so many layers to him, and that you actually root for. And I really loved that series for that reason. I think we started to get a little bit more recently, like with Maleficent, where you're looking at Maleficent's journey. Also, uh, The Wizard of Oz, that the Broadway play Wicked, where you're looking at the Wicked Witch's life and how she got that way. So I think that we are, as a society, really interested in what makes somebody evil. I think we're all sitting back wondering why the U.S. president is so evil and how did he get that way? Like, what is wrong with him? And we try and psychoanalyze him, right? What did daddy do to you? (laughs) What did daddy do to you? I think we're maturing to the point, too, where more and more people are wanting what Kenny wants, which is a villain who we can see through their eyes and see how they're not twirling their mustache, but they're just a person with a separate set of goals and a separate point of view. You empathize with the, the villain. Yeah, we get it. We may not agree with them, but we understand the logic of what drove them to do what they're doing right mm-hmm. now. And given another perspective, they could be the protagonist of this story. And I think I think that's interesting because... You look at the villain as somebody who who had something happen to them where everything just then went totally wrong. And I think that happens to us a lot in real life. Big events happen to us and we have the choice to be to go either direction. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like you want to make the right choices and and that sort of thing. But you also want to understand maybe why people don't make the right choices. And I guess we don't always make the right choices. And it's a good learning experience. <laughs> it is. Because then you know, you know, don't, I don't know, don't blow up the world and be a villain. <laughs> don't ask for a billion dollars. <laughs> Have either of you uh, seen the Jake Gyllenhaal movie Nightcrawler? It's no. on my list. I haven't seen it yet. That is a really excellent representation of how he's definitely, he is our protagonist, but he is not heroic in the least. But the reasons he becomes more and more, I guess, for lack of a better word, villainous throughout the story is that that's what that environment, the the sensationalist news coverage demands of him. They want more and more graphic, more and more disturbing type of images. And so he as the hard, tenacious worker who we do side with and empathize with in the beginning of the story. He's more than willing to go that extra mile, that greater length to get the ultimate disturbing piece and just shucking his moral boundaries. And we realize that it's not so much his sin as it's just our demand as a society. This is what we seem to crave. And I just wanted to bring that in before we... Uh, move on to the next layer of talking about villains. Oh, the next layer. What's the next, the next layer? layer? There's so many layers and the I'm only scratching the surface. Like this is just a couple of YouTube videos mm-hmm. worth of information. So many different things that you can learn about storycraft and how to craft good characters and a compelling story. But uh, moving back to Batman and the Joker. It I is, see uh, that Dark Knight is one of your favorite movies, potentially. At the time, it was one of my favorite superhero movies, Mm -hmm. but 
as a whole, I'm not a huge fan of the superhero genre. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. just it provides a good avenue to exploring the the stark contrasting hero and yeah. villain. Whereas I was actually going to do this a bit later, but since you're challenging me at this point, I'll bring it back to Detroit Become Human right now. Um, Who would you say is the villain in that? I mean, it depends on the choices you make, because you could become the villain. Yes, but I would actually... North was the villain. (laughs) I would actually say if I was going for an overarching villain for that story, the villain or the force of antagonism that our three protagonists are meeting up against most often is actually public opinion itself. They have to sway this public opinion and change the perception that they're just object who, objects who can be used and disposed of. So really different way of looking at a villain, but obviously very compelling as I love the story. Yeah, humanity was often the villain in that story. It was interesting. Yeah, the way that humans abused androids because they just weren't human. So now... The Joker and Batman. (laughs) Um, John Truby also gives us this quote about how it is only by competing for the same goal that the hero and the opponent are forced to come into direct conflict and to do so again and again throughout the story because we want as many different points of the hero and villain crossing as possible. So in the case of the Dark Knight, both... Batman and the Joker are competing for what the Joker calls the soul of Gotham. Batman believes that people are inherently good and altruistic and will make the right choice, whereas the Joker thrives on creating situations where he's pressuring people to make the wrong choice. Uh And nowhere is that more visible than the final dilemma of the fairy problem, Uh where you have the two ships who both have the detonators to each other's bombs, and... There's a running clock, and whoever fails to push the button first is obliterated by an exploding ship. And that's, of course, a scenario that Batman ultimately wins because the Joker is proven wrong. Mm -hmm. And I prefer that kind of an ending where the stakes are so real. Like, if you have a, a superhero movie, say a Superman movie, where literally the entire Earth could be destroyed, mm-hmm. we all know in our hearts Superman's going to win the day. Exactly. But if you have a scenario where the Joker could blow up a couple fairies, that could happen. That's mm-hmm. an Empire Strikes Back type of, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of a downer ending, but it could very well happen. We could see yeah. it. And it's not going but, to but destroy with, the universe. But with that movie, I mean, the power to destroy each other was given to the public. And I mean, that was, I mean, that was his whole point. I mean, the Joker wanted to prove that people are Give people a push and they go mad. Yeah, people, people will turn on each other uh, when things go out of control. Inherently selfish, inherently self-interested that they are going to make that wrong choice for self-preservation every time. Whereas Batman competes with and ultimately proves the Joker wrong in the idealistic case of Gotham City. And so I love that ending. I love that as an end battle scenario so much more than the cosmos are battling one another and explosions everywhere and my eyes gloss over and I just do not care. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm already picturing the Superman movies. I'm just like snoozing <laughs> as I'm watching. Uh, another city being destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> Things happening on screen, like yeah. a Transformers movie where just senseless explosions everywhere. Yeah, pointless. Ultimately pointless, whereas a, a well-crafted story is going to take the theme of the story and bring it to that nice crisp point at the very end that we can all recognize and understand and come out of it with something some kind of point to what we've just watched so the one uh movie that like a nerd writer analyzed was um arrival which i also Mm. really like and i mean the conflict there is really around language i mean the whole movie was about language and how we communicate with each other and i mean the the climax of the movie was all due to our failure to communicate and how communication is so difficult for human beings from a, either from an interpersonal level all the way to a global level, trying to communicate with different countries and nationalities. I mean, the whole movie just tied all those themes together really nicely, especially when the whole premise of the movie that was advertised was you're trying to communicate with aliens. Mm-hmm. But the entire, uh, I, to me, I mean, the whole point of the movie was just how our own communications amongst human beings can cause just a, this complete failure in trust and um and ability to kind of uh 
address conflict. Absolutely. Just a cascade of failures all the way down, starting with our inability to get on the same page and communicate with each other effectively. Loved Arrival. One of my favorite sci-fis of the last 10 years. It it blew my mind when I watched it in theaters. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Sherry? Any mind-blowing movies lately? I can't think of any. <laughs> I'm trying. I've been too focused on video games. <laughs> well, you know what? See, it's all about this story. This is another point about video games. Although, it just distracts you from other things. TV, I have been watching, and I know I sort of when we first came in, we were talking a little bit about TV before we started recording. And Handmaid's Tale is one that I'm I'm very much in, and it it is a lot about you know communication as well about you know being able to convince people that this is the way you should live and they're really forcing it down people's throats and they definitely nailed that tone of oppression the whole time watching Mm. handmaid's tale i felt oppressed like i felt like i was in a box and i desperately wanted these characters you know my surrogates to get out of this box somehow Mm -hmm. and it became so frustrating the more they met every dead end and every instance where they weren't able to defeat this horrible antagonistic force of oppression. And in the third season, we're getting a look more at the villains as well and seeing them as human and understanding that sometimes, you know, some of them felt like they made mistakes in in creating this society because it went too far. They had this smaller vision and it just, the ball kept rolling and they couldn't stop it, right? Mm -hmm. So... So it's interesting to look at the layers. Kind of walk through. I mean, they did it because it was the only way for them to survive in that society, or Um, for some of them, we don't get the backstory on a lot of it. Um, We just see, you know, certain characters feeling regret and remorse and trying to make it right and trying to clean up their mess now. So do you get the sense? I haven't kept up with the episodes. It was too much and too depressing for me by the end of season two. Has it become something like a, a Frankenstein's monster where it's grown beyond their control and they just they don't even know how to challenge their own system anymore? I think a little bit um, for certain characters. Um, Are certain... there still true believers out there too? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still clearly being run by a bunch of true believers, but there are people within, you know, the creators of, of the society that are starting to regret what they've done and they can't stand up to it because the group think has decided that this is the way the society is going to be. Praise be. (laughs) (laughs) May the Lord open. (laughs) Under his eye. (laughs) Oh, you two are good. (laughs) So I'm I'm not sure how to package this in terms of a, uh, a social good five-star rating other than the importance of telling good stories with a compelling message which I, I feel like is an easy five-star if I were to say it that way. You've rated five-star as that much of a positive impact. Stories to me are just all there really is. Stories we've been through doing, the arts. We've been doing it for since we were cavemen. And yeah. women, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> if there's direct, I mean, I don't know if there's direct evidence, but there's... They keep us going. They're the most important learning tools that we have. They're a way for us to connect with one another. The indigenous population has been telling oral stories for for generations, and that's how they have their history. So I think stories are so important. Yeah, so I give it five stars. I like stories. Yeah, good, sure. Good stories. Five stars as well. No Supermans, but other things. <laughs> <laughs> good stories with well-crafted characters that teach us something about ourselves and about our society. As a, as a, I can't the right word at large mm-hmm. okay now on to announcements okay so in september our meeting is going to be on the september the 11th and it is going to be starting a little bit earlier so make sure you check the website to see that because we're going to be watching a film um the filmmaker is his last name is campolo he is the son of a preacher a very um well-known preacher in the U.S., and uh, the son became atheist, and it's about how the father-son um, relationship was changed, and so you, it's a documentary about, about their relationship. It's very interesting. 
so we'll watch the film and then afterwards we will have a bit of a discussion um, and it should be very interesting. So come on out to that. It is again, uh, same place, same, same bat time, same <laughs> bat channel. I knew we're, it. <laughs> <laughs> we're at the uh, London Public Library, the Central Library. Um, yeah, so come on out to that. Check our website for more details. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for joining us and we will check you guys out next time. See you later. See you next time. Who actually owns their own printer now? I I thought you might. I'm a teacher. teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I need to. I actually own a laminator as well. (laughs) A laminator. A tiny laminator. You can make my fake ID for me since I I can't buy booze at the at the alcohol store. That's why I got it. That's like the most teacher thing I've ever heard. (laughs) I'm a laminator. (laughs) It's awesome. I love it. I need more things to laminate. (laughs) I'll start working on your ID. (laughs) Sweet.